Welcome to the Bradleyville Church of Christ podcast. We are a family of believers striving to be the first century church in the 21st century. We are located at 25861 State Highway 76 in Bradleyville, Missouri. Please join us for Bible study Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. with worship to follow at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday night Bible study is at 7 p.m. Now enjoy our lesson. We're going to talk a little bit about the, the birth of Jesus today. And... Um, you think about the stories of the Bible that people love the most. You know, when, when, when you ask people, what's, what's your favorite story of the Bible? Sometimes they might say, you know, Joseph and, and his time in Egypt, right? His in slavery in Egypt. You might say Daniel and the lion's den. But if you really nail people down, a lot of people say, well, my favorite story is the birth of Jesus. And it's because of the, first off, it's because of the fact that a baby's being born, right? Who doesn't love babies? That's good news. But you think about this particular baby <clears throat> and all of the blessings that this little one brought into the world, all the wonderful, the wonderful blessings that, that spread to all mankind. And we've been, we've been really diving into this in our adult class on, in the book of Romans to see what God did for us while we were enemies. God sent his son into the world. Um, but today I want, I want to approach it from a little bit different perspective. I want to talk about Jesus' birth related to doctrine and liberty. And we'll talk about what that means in just a little bit. But I want to, I want to preface it by a conversation that I had with a co-worker here earlier this week. Um, we were, I, I just, I made a real quick trip to the copy machine. And this co-worker was, was making copies and she had a big old stack of stuff. And so she said, hey, I'm going to get out of the way and let you, let you print what you need. And then, and then I'll get back in there. I said, oh, great. So I step up there and I badge myself in so I can make copies and while I'm doing that she says um, is your church when's your church having their candlelight service for Christmas and I said well we're not having one and she kind of looked at me strange like that was that was unusual because that was the expectation I want to talk about what does the Bible say about Jesus birth what what do we what do we as Christians have uh, opportunities in liberties in but also doctrine to and teachings about Jesus' birth, and how do we how do we interact with each other? In particular, what does the church do? What what's the church's um, opportunities and and their their responsibilities in related to Jesus' birth? Because um, sometimes we may get uh, we may we may try to project what what we think or what's other people on us. We may try to we may try to become. Um, dogmatic about certain things. And so I want us to spend some time thinking about the birth of Jesus from a standpoint of doctrine and liberty. And just so we kind of understand what we're talking about here when we say doctrine and liberty, we, we got to kind of define these terms. Think about what doctrine is. And we talked about this when we were going through our foundation series. Doctrine is the teachings of of, of a person or a thing, right? So if you had the, the, the teachings of a, uh, if you were going through doctor school, if you're going to be a doctor, right, you're going to go through school and you're going to be taught the doctrine of that school related to, to medicine. Uh, in particular, when we talk about the doctrine of, of, of God, we're talking about the teachings of God. We're talking about those, those teachings that he espouses in his word through his son or through his inspired writers. And so an example of this might be you know, there Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, where Jesus says, Thus it is written... Thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise again the third day. That's the doctrine of the gospel, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. 
I didn't know this on there, but Jesus would say something similar to this at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. You remember he's taught for what we would say three chapters, but however long a period of time that he's talked there, he's talked about the kingdom of heaven and what a citizen of the kingdom would look like, how they would act, how they would even think. And he comes to the end and says, he who hears these words of mine, these sayings of mine, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man. What's he doing? He's demonstrating that his teachings are doctrine. They are, we have a responsibility to them. And so we understand then that when God speaks on a matter, that he is establishing then teachings. And sometimes we, we may miss this, but sometimes God's silence on a matter can establish teaching as strongly as, as his words. Think about the Lord's Supper we just partook of here. Why do we use the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper? And it's because of the example that we read. You could go over to Matthew chapter 26 and you could read verses 26 and 27 where Jesus used the elements of the Passover meal to then institute the Lord's Supper. Paul reiterates that in 1 Corinthians when he says, I, 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 I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. Well, when Jesus used the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, what did he automatically preclude? You know what I really like? Biscuits and gravy. But you know what Jesus precluded whenever he used the unleavened bread, the free line? He, by, by definition, by, by using those as an example, he then precludes biscuits and gravy and Dr. Pepper and Snickers bars and whatever else we might like. He, by his silence on the matter, has said, or by his definition of what is right. Thanks, the same lesson can be seen throughout the scriptures. You remember whenever God gave the pattern of the ark to Noah and he told him, I want you to build it. 300 cubits long and 75 cubits wide and 75 cubits tall. You know what he automatically did? He made a 350 cubit boat, not according to his will, right? He also told him he wanted to use gopher wood. And so by, by defining the, the, the terms of the agreement, you might say, or, or the terms of his commandment, he by his nature then, he, ex, he excludes everything else. We understand that in our own lives. How many of you, when your kids got sent to the store by your parents, so your mom gives you a $20 bill or a $10 bill, or today it might be a $50 bill with inflation, and she says, I want you to go to the store and I want you to get a gallon of milk and I want you to get a, a, a loaf of bread and I want you to get a, a sack of onions. And so you go to the store and you get a loaf of bread and a sack of milk and or a loaf of bread and a, and, a, and a gallon of milk and a sack of onions, and then you buy, you use the rest of that money to buy candy bars, right? And you come home and your mom says, where's the change? I used it all in candy bar, right? By giving you the directions, what she has implicitly said is, this is what I want you to spend the money on. And, we, and, and we, therefore, we don't have authority then to go buy anything else unless she, she gives that authority. So we see in the, doc, in the principle of doctrine, we see that God's silence can sometimes be as strong as his, his words. But what about liberty? What is liberty? And you might define liberty as the grace of God that gives us the, the scope of personal belief. Paul uses the phrase scruples over in Romans chapter 15. And if you want to turn over to Romans 15 and just kind of put your bookmark there, we're going to be back in Matthew and Luke for a while. But we're going to get back to Romans. Uh, but I want you just to see this, this use of this word. In Romans 15, Paul says, uh, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. What is a scruple? What does that mean? The Greek word that's used there literally means a small, sharp stone. 
And it was a, you know, back in the day, back in the time of the Bible, when people wore sandals more than solid shoes, you might be walking down the road and you might, it's kind of like going to the creek with your flip-flops on, right? And you get that little stone in there. And you walk on that for a while. And what does that stone do? It reminds you that it's there. Um, Paul uses that Greek word, that concept of a small sharp stone to speak about something that is a, that, that, that's a prick to our conscience. Do you ever have things that prick your conscience? They may not be things that God has said specifically on or even been silent over, but they're things that we hold in personal belief. I can give you an example of this. Um, and I've used this example before. Willie Franklin, a great gospel preacher, one of his scruples is he will not wear short sleeves out in public. He says, I don't think it's appropriate for me to wear short sleeves out in public. You know what that's not? That's not doctrine. And he would be wrong to teach other people that, but he holds that as a personal scruple. Some of you may have personal scruples. One of mine is I don't like my hair to touch my ears. Partly because I don't like the way it feels, but I also think it makes me look... That's not a look that I want to project to the world. And so if, if your hair touches your ears, that's your deal, right? But I'm not going to typically have my hair touch my ears. It's a, it's a personal scruple of mine. And so when we, when we talk about areas of liberty, those are areas that we have the grace of God then to, to hold personal beliefs. What's important to note, though, is when liberty and doctrine collide, what's going to take precedent? We always want God's Word to take precedent. So if we have personal beliefs that then come in opposition to God's Word, then we need to, to learn to mold ourselves in the shape of God. But in areas of liberty, we have great freedom. That's one of the themes you'll read throughout the Scriptures is the freedom that we have. We have the, the ability to make decisions on them, to hold our own personal faith, you might say, or our own personal beliefs on specific things. But, but Paul's going to make the point in Romans chapter 14 when we get there is two things you don't do. As long as your faith is not in contrast with, with the doctrine of God, don't violate your faith. And don't intentionally violate the faith of somebody else. Don't try to, to cause them to stumble. That's what we will see in, in Romans chapter 14, 22 through, through Romans 15, 1. I'm going to pause on that because we're going to come back to that. But now I want to talk about the birth of Jesus because I love talking about the birth of Jesus. You think about the, the great blessings that were... You think about the, the majesty of heaven that's on display in the birth of Jesus. I want to read a few of these passages here. William read for us Luke chapter 2, but I want to go back to Matthew, and I want to read here just to remind ourselves of this story of the birth of Jesus. And in particular, I want to think about the family situation. What family did God bring his son into? You know when you're born, you don't get to pick your family? You ever thought about that? But when God brought his son into the world, do you know what he did? He was intentional about what family he brought his son into. Think about Joseph and Mary as we read through this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. We're going to go back to Luke and we're going to read a little bit more about that event. But then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. 
But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You know who had ever had that said to them before? Only one other person. And that was Mary. There's no other child that's been conceived of the Holy Spirit. Mary was going to be told that when we get over Luke chapter chapter 1. But you see Joseph being taught that here. He's being, the Lord is demonstrating to Joseph that the child that Mary is carrying is not from an adulterous relationship. She wasn't being unfaithful to him. But she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and this, this little child that's being conceived in him. And I want to emphasize this is a child, not a fetus. This little baby is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to, uh, took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. I want you to notice here the integrity of Joseph. He was a man who, when betrothed to his wife, when he hears that she's a child, he, he, he thinks, okay, there's some, this, is, this is a situation of unfaithfulness, but I'm not going to embarrass her. I'm just going to put her away privately. So that it doesn't become a, a, a scandal. Holy, the, the, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and he explains the situation. And what does Joseph do? He acts in obedience to the Lord. This is a man of integrity. When it comes time, when we go over to chapter 2, we, or in Luke chapter 2, and we see that it's time to go for a census, you know what he does? He goes to where he's supposed to go. Was it convenient? No, because his betrothed wife is pregnant. She's about to give birth. But he goes and he does it anyway because he's a man of integrity. If you were going to send your son into the world, who would you choose to be his daddy? God chose Joseph. What about Mary? Why did God choose Mary to be the mother of Jesus? Let's go over to Luke now. I want to read about Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 26. Now the sixth month, the sixth, this is sixth month compared to uh, Elizabeth, who was uh, Mary's cousin. She's been uh, with child now. John the, the baptizer is going to be born of, of Elizabeth and, and Zacharias. And so that's what the reference here is to. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. You look just in the words that are describing Mary here. Look at her purity. She was a young woman. She was a virgin. She was betrothed to a man. That means they're what we might call engaged, but it's like engaged on steroids because they're, they're, they're called husband and wife, but they're not intimate with each other. They haven't, they haven't been joined together in a sexual relationship and they're not living together. Think about society today and how somewhat unusual that's becoming that you can find somebody who has the purity of Mary that 
that then the Lord would look at and say, you know, I want her to be the mother of my son. And having, become, having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. One of the understatements of the scriptures, right? She is, and she's going to recognize this when you go down in chapter 2 and you read the, her, her song of praise. She recognizes how God is, and not, 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 this is not coming from an area, a, a, a spirit of arrogance or pride, but she recognizes that God has placed upon her a great responsibility, that she will be called blessed. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Why? Because she was faithful. Because she was pure. Because, she, because God knew her heart. And God knew that she would make a good mama for his son. You think about all the things that a mama does for a little baby. Think about all the care that goes into raising a child. And God knew that his son would need that care, would need that attention, would need the, the, the nurturing, would need the discipline, would need the, the, you know, to take care of his boo-boos as well as his, his spiritual struggles that he's going through. Um, and God looks at the right time. He looks across the face of the earth and he sees Mary. There's a picture of a family that was right for the Son of God. You think about heaven's role, and I've got a lot more verses up here that we could look at to talk about them, but for the sake of time, I'm going to skip through this. But you think about heaven's role in, in the birth of Jesus. You think about the idea that God, even before um, Mary and Joseph were born, even before their parents were born, even before their grandparents were born, God is prophesying about this situation. Matthew notes two prophecies just by himself there in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 about the fulfillment of, of prophecy, excuse me, in the birth of Jesus. The first one we noted there um, was in uh, verse 23. He says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's a prophecy that was made hundreds of years before this story takes place, heaven is looking through the scope of time to say, in, in time, at the right time, there's going to be a virgin and she's going to bear a son. And he is going to be God with us. You go on to chapter 2 and you see, another, you see another prophecy that's being fulfilled here. They go to, to Bethlehem where the child is born and says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not of the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. God was prophesying, speaking through his prophets about the coming of the Messiah. You think about the miraculous conception, the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. It's never happened before. And it's not that it's it's not that it's with it, it's it's so powerful that God could only do it one time, but it's so important that God would only do it one time. There's only one time that it was necessary that the Son of Man also be the Son of God. And so you see this this proclamation to um, to Joseph in Matthew chapter one. You see the proclamation and the action then in Luke chapter 1 of this taking place. And think about the role of angels. 
Think about how angels were instrumental in the birth of Jesus, in the in the proclamation of his of the of the conception that was going to take place here, in the proclamation to to uh, to um, Joseph, how the angel Gabriel in particular is instrumental in a lot of this proclamation. You think about the angels and their role in proclaiming the birth of Jesus to the shepherds who were in the field. How they, they speak to in those words, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. And then that whole host, the innumerable host of angels that are all praising God there before those shepherds. You think about the role that the, that the angels played in warning Joseph in a dream to escape so that, he, so that baby Jesus would be safe. And how then the angels warned or instructed Joseph to come back from Egypt when it was safe. But as he's traveling back, he, he, he learns that, that one of the Herods is now in control that might be jeopardizing to Jesus. And so in a dream, he's sent to Nazareth. The role of angels in the birth of Jesus is, is monumental, really, in, in, in reference to time. If you think about the, the, the role that angels play in different events throughout history, the volume of angel work here that's described for us is, is monumental. And it's glorious. And you think about the nature of his birth. How, how lowly it was. You've got, you've got two people who are, 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 are just, just betrothed to each other, but they haven't, even, they haven't even been joined together truly as husband and wife. And they're going to travel to another country. I say another country. They're, 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 it's their home region, right? But they don't live in Bethlehem. And it's not like they're going there on a vacation. They're going down there for a census. And when they get down there, they find that there's no room in the inn for them, right? And so the world looks at that, that birth and they say, well, that's, you know, they didn't plan very well for that. They didn't get an appointment at, at Cox Hospital to make sure that baby was born in the right place. Even the, even the aspect of being, being laid in the manger would be something that the world would look at in general and say, you know, that's, that's kind of degrading. But you think about the, the, the glorious nature from heaven. It was witnessed by the poor and the rich alike. Now we say poor, we're throwing in poor. These shepherds may not have been poor, but they were, they were working men, right? They're the working class. And they're out in the fields tending their sheep. And again, I'm paraphrasing a lot of this just for the sake of time because I, I don't, I'm, I'm trying, first of all, I'm trying to train myself to get back on pace as far as getting you guys out on time. But I also want to, I want to give you opportunity to go back and read some of these passages. But I want you to think about the shepherds. They're out there tending their sheep. You know what they're not doing? They're not paying somebody else to go out there and tend their sheep. This is, these, are, these are folks who work for a living. And yet the angels appear to them. Let's, let's look at Luke chapter 2. I just told you I wasn't going to read this, but I can't hardly resist it. Luke chapter 2 verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Can you, can you picture what that would have been like? It's pitch dark. Maybe there's a little bit of a moon. You don't know. But then all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord shines forth. And they didn't have to guess about what this was. <laughs> They weren't, trying to, they weren't trying to decide what, what the source of, of, the, of the light was. They were greatly afraid by it. 
Then an angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there with those shepherds to hear that proclamation? Why did God choose those shepherds? I wouldn't tell us specifically. But you see these working men who are given the news that the Christ is born. And they get not only to hear the news, but listen to the show they get to see. Um, and this will be assigned to you. For this is, uh, for there is born to you in the... For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now that's kind of a that's kind of a uh, kind of a general general description right there. Where would you go look for a baby lying in a manger? But you know what? They didn't have any trouble finding finding the baby because notice what happens. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So they see this great manifestation of angels and this loud proclamation. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at these things which were told them by the shepherds. So you notice there, these shepherds didn't keep it quiet either. They went out and proclaimed it to all mankind. So you got the, you got the working class coming to honor Jesus. I said the poor there. But you've got people who are, are not the most wealthy of society. But then you've got these, this other group that comes. Who's the other group that comes? And they bring... Big presence, right? You've got the wise men from the east. These men who see the star and they come to worship the king. And they bring gifts that are fit for a king. They bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And you remember the story there, how they first come to Herod the king. And they want to know where the, where the king of Israel is going to be, where the king of the Jews is to be born. And Harold, Harold, Herod, where Harold came from. I might have to call him that for the rest of the sermon to keep getting confused. But Herod, he, you know, he he asked for the he asked for those who who know the scriptures to 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 find this out. And they said, well, it's obvious that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the scriptures say. So he tells them, go to Bethlehem, and when you find this child, come back and tell me so I can come and worship him also, right? That's maybe why I called him Harold. I don't mean to offend anybody named Harold, but you think about this guy is, is he's, he's not straightforward about it. But the wise men, they go and they worship. They bring these gifts. They offer them to, to, to Jesus. And then they, they're divinely warned again. You see a, a, the, the role of heaven, that the heaven plays in the birth of Jesus. And they're told to go back a different way. And you remember the destruction that comes after that. We see here that heaven has a role in bringing all classes of people to come and to worship Jesus. It happened at the right time. You know, in, uh, in our study in Romans, we saw that God in due time sent forth His Son to die for us. But you know what had to happen for Him to die? He had to be born. And so Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, in the fullness of time, what does that mean? 
at the right time. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those who are under the law. Jesus came at the right time. And you could have a whole lesson on what the right time meant. You could look at all the socioeconomic, the political, this cultural things that were going on in Israel, but also in the world at large to, to point to the fact that that was the right time for Jesus to be born. Heaven had a timeline that they enacted in the birth of Jesus, and it was the greatest blessing to ever be bestowed upon the world. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace, goodwill toward man. That proclamation that the angels made there was an opening salvo, you might say. It was the opening shot or the opening um, notes of a song that would be declared throughout the generations to all mankind that God sent forth His Son to deliver mankind from his sin, to justify mankind. This is a very brief a very a very succinct review of the doctrine of Jesus' birth. And we glory in that doctrine. We praise God for the for the teachings that we see here. What about the silence of Jesus' birth though? There's a lot of things that we that we that we that we think about or we see associated with, with the birth of Jesus that, that the, the Bible doesn't speak to. It doesn't speak about, you know, Jesus is laid in a manger, but oftentimes we see in, our, in, the, in the scenes of, of the, uh, the um, nativity scene, we see all the livestock around. It doesn't speak to that. It doesn't mean that they were or they weren't, but the Bible's silent on that, right? Now, what about the little drummer boy? What, what verse? And again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to belittle any of these because there's, there's a lot of value that comes from them, but the Bible's silent on the story of the little drummer boy. What about the wise men? How many wise men were there? We always think three, right? But you read through the scriptures and there's no, there's no proclamation of the number. Why do we often associate three, though? Because of the three gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What if three of them bought gold and three of them bought frankincense and three of them brought myrrh? Well, you got, you've got a different, uh, a different count there, right? And it's not that, it's not that, those, that those, those traditions are necessarily right or wrong, but when we talk about doctrine and liberty, we want to be very clear, don't we? We want to be careful that we don't teach these things as being biblical truth when they're not. What about, uh, what about the time of Jesus' birth? Is it biblical that Jesus was born on December 25th? Well, if you look through the scriptures, we see that the time of Jesus' birth, the time frame is given for us. We know Herod is on the throne. We know Caesar Augustus is the Caesar. We know Quirinius is the governor of Syria, and so you can look back through time and you can find a time frame which is around 4 BC to about 6 AD that all these people are kind of in their seats at the time when this happens. But you know, one thing that's never given to us is the date of Jesus' birth. You can go back through and you can, you can do research on how December 25th was picked to be the birth of Jesus, and it corresponds more with pagan tradition than it does with biblical tradition. Because scholars, biblical scholars, have gone back. And, and you could even go into when was Zacharias supposed to be serving in the tabernacle or in the temple? When was his, when was his group, his family's role in the tabernacle, in, the, in the service of the temple? And then you project that out nine months and you project it another three months and you can come up with a general time frame. But if you do all that math, it, it doesn't correspond with the December 25th. And I say all that to say this. 
When it comes to worshiping or, or to, to recognizing the birth of Jesus in the church, what does the Bible say about this? Now we go through the scriptures and we look at the worship of the church. We look at how, how we are to worship. And we see specific examples and we see even specific commands about how we are to worship you. When we, when we talk about the, the observance of the, of, the, um, of the Lord's Supper, we see the command that we, that we read Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. We also see it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we see the example of the, of the disciples gathering together to, preserve, to, to partake of the Lord's Supper. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, they gathered together on the first day of the week in, in the city of Troas to do this. And so we see some examples and some commands related to the observance of the Lord's Supper. We see some examples and commands of, of the observance of the Lord's Day. And we can look at Acts chapter 20, verse 7 again, that they gathered together on the first day of the week. Uh, John refers to that as the Lord's Day in, Re in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. But... Uh, when you look at the observance of Jesus' birth in the church, the scriptures are silent on it. There's no, there's no, there's no evidence that Jesus' birth was either was either commanded to or, or given by example, or even by necessary inference to be observed in the worship of the church, either on a on a weekly basis or on an annual basis. And so the silence of the scriptures is, is, very, is very heavy on this. We worship according to the pattern that we see in the New Testament. If we strive to be the first century church in the 21st century, we look at those examples and we worship accordingly. And so when, we, when, 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 we're, when I'm asked the question at the uh, copy machine, is your congregation having a, a candlelight vigil or candlelight service? I said, I said, no, we don't observe that in the worship of the church. And that's why she got this look on her face, because how can a church not worship the birth of Jesus? And it's because the scriptures don't give us an example of that. They don't give us a, a, a command to do it. They don't give us a, the necessary inference to do it. And so we, in the, as we worship God in spirit and in truth, we strive then to, to follow that example. So the question then becomes, well, how, how as Christians then, can, how can we observe Christmas at all? Well, this is where you see personal liberty come in. Do we have personal liberty that may differentiate between what we do in the church and the worship and what we may do in our lives? This is the wonderful blessing that we see related to, related to a lot of areas of our lives, but in particular related to Christmas. And in particular, just ask the question, should Christians, should Christians celebrate Christmas or not? Well, let's go to the book of Romans and let's, let's read here about liberty um, real quickly. And I want us then to make a judgment for ourselves. Because in the area of liberty, we have judgment, right? We have the, the realm of judgment. As long as we're not in conflict with the doctrine of Christ, then we have the ability to have our own personal beliefs or personal scruples. Listen to what Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 14. He says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. What he's setting up here is he's setting up a, a scenario by which we are to defer to each other in areas of, of liberty. So there may be some people who have a strong commitment or a strong conviction that they don't eat anything but vegetables. What would we call them? Vegetarians, right? You've got, you've got these folks who, who become, and, it, and it's not necessarily because of, it may not be because of health reasons, but it may be because they see the meat that's being offered to idols being sold in the marketplace. They don't know where the meat they're coming from. Is, is, they, they see these idols as being a big thing, and they don't want to be a, a, have appearance 
of eating meat offered to idols. And so he says there's some people that don't have that scruple. They don't have that concern. There are others who do. How do we, how do we deal with that in the church? He said, let him who eats despise, not, let him, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be able to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Now listen to this. He says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day, uh, who does not observe it, he, um, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he, uh, for he gives thanks, God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. Here's, here's what we see. Um, I'm going to make sure I'm not skipping anything. Just kind of cut this short. Um, let's look at verse 12 13. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to, uh, to fall uh, in our brother's way. Here's the point. There may be some among us who, worship, who, who observe Christmas as the birth of Jesus. You may do it knowing that the Scriptures doesn't teach that, right? We, we, we know that today, that the Bible doesn't tell us that Jesus was born on the 25th, but maybe you celebrate it that way anyway because that's your conviction. You have liberty to do that. What about those who observe Christmas as being a time of great celebration? You think about the general, the, the blessings that come from the birth of Jesus, but you know Christmas is not Jesus' birthday, and so you celebrate the, the we might say the spirit of the season, right? You have that liberty, right? And there are maybe some among us who, who have, by their own conviction, say, I know Jesus wasn't born on the 25th, and I, and I know the, there are certain things about Christmas that I don't agree with, and so I'm not going to celebrate it at all. You have that liberty to do that. You know in the church there are people that represent all three of those classes? You may not know it because we may not talk about it, but you'll find people in the church who there's, there are some people who will celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas. There are some people who celebrate the season, and there are some people who choose not to celebrate at all. You know what we have? We have great liberty in those areas. So what does it look like then? How do we treat each other when we have different scruples, we have different beliefs about Christmas? Paul's going to tell us this. We don't, first off, we don't judge each other, right? If you have a different view of Christmas than I do, that's your opinion. You hold it. Now, one thing I would caution us is if, if we see things that are contrary to, to, to doctrine, that, we, that we, we really study those things, but it's my responsibility to study it for myself, and you, you don't project that onto me. The second thing we see in verses 17 through 19 is that we remember that these scruples, that these personal beliefs don't define the kingdom of heaven. For we, he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by them. Um, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by them. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. And he goes on to say in verse 22, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, or you might say for days. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. The third thing we need to do is we need to be convinced in our own minds. Why is that important? 
because Paul's going to say that if you violate, in these areas of liberty, if you violate your own conscience, that is sin. That's interesting, right? So, so what that means is I can, I can define areas of sin in the realm of liberty whenever I set bounds for myself and then I go outside those bounds. I'll give you an example of this. I didn't, well, I'll go back to the example of Brother Willie. He set bounds for himself saying that he won't wear long sleeves out in public. And then he gets some pressure from some, some friends and they, they start to talk to him about this. And they say, well, you know what? This is really not a big deal. You're probably, you're probably going overboard on this. And he gives in to the pressure and he puts on short sleeves and he goes out. What has he just done? He's violated his conscience, right? He's violated that, that, that realm, that, that, that bound that he has set for himself. And Paul's going to tell us that is sinful. Listen to what he says in verse 22. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Can we change our scruples? Yeah. Can we violate our scruples? No. Those things that we hold dear, we have to be true to. We have to hold fast to. And we have a responsibility but here's the, the bottom line. We do what we can to edify and to please each other. Verse 15, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You think about what Christ did when he came down to this earth. You think of what he put up with to go to the cross. You think about how he restricted himself in order to set an example for us. And that's the picture that we see here in this idea of doctrine and liberty. That sometimes I have to say no to myself so that I can be an edification to you. Sometimes I have to, I have to defer. Now, again, be cautious here that we don't violate our own scruples here. But if I have the ability within myself to say, you know what? Let's, let's take the example here of eating, right? And, and one of you in here says, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel comfortable eating pork X, Y, Z reason. Like, you know what we probably ought not to have at the next fellowship meal? Pork. You come over to my house and I've got, maybe you don't celebrate Christmas and I've got Christmas decorations up. What I'm probably going to do is apologize to you. And if I, if I need to take them down, if that, it's that offensive to you, I would take them down. But it's whatever we can do to be encouraging to each other to not cause a brother to stumble. You think about how complex that can be, but essentially it comes down to this. What are we willing to do to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? What are we willing to do to get as many people to go to heaven as we can? Now, this all kind of started around the, the, the story of Jesus. I love the story of Jesus because it, the birth of Jesus, because it pictures for us how much God loved you and me, and particularly how much Jesus loved you because he was willing to, to come from his throne in heaven, to come from the throne room of God, and to condescend a man and come and live among us. To be born of a virgin, to be born into a family that was not rich and not powerful and not, not influential, 
but he would become the most influential person to ever be born. Regardless of your own personal beliefs, we're united in the glorious truth of Jesus' birth, his death, and his resurrection. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 3, Praise be to God, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The story of Jesus is a lovely story. The story of his birth is a lovely story. It's a story that we should, we should celebrate all year long and intend to. Be intentional about it. Um, but we have the, the opportunity then to hold specific liberties or scruples related to that. And we have the opportunity then to, to, to minister to each other in, that, in those areas. Maybe, um, maybe it's not the birth of Jesus that we, that we wrestle with, but maybe it's the death of Jesus. You know, what's really interesting to me is there's a lot of people that love the baby Jesus. But there's very there's there's a lot less people there's a lot fewer people who love the crucified Jesus. You know it's the same Jesus. The same little baby that was born was the one that went to the cross, and that's the one that we need to 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 bow our knee to. Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you understand that Jesus came and he died on the cross for your sins, and that he then by dying on the cross gives you an opportunity to be a part of the family of God? Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. For more information about our church family, please visit our Bradleyville Church of Christ Facebook page. We hope to see you soon. Till then, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We hope you have a good day.